So if you all would please turn to uh, 1 Samuel 18. Before we read, I'd just like to ask you a question. How would you, if you had to write one sentence or a few or a paragraph, how would you define a friend or friendship? You know, because I think anymore in this culture that we're living in, a friend is fairly loosely defined. And what I mean by that is you could become somebody's quote-unquote friend on Facebook and you've never talked to them in your life. And I could say I have friends on Facebook I don't intend on talking to them. I'm saying I'd talk to them, but I'm saying I've never talked to them. I'm saying I almost don't even know who they are. And so how do we define a friend? Who is a friend? <laughs> so the Oxford English Dictionary, which I have, defines a friend this way. It says, one that is joined to another in intimacy and mutual benevolence. And that's a big word, benevolence. It just means that you have well-meaning and kindly attention to a person. And it's independent of sexual or family love. So a friend has nothing to do with a sexual relationship or those ties of family is what it's saying. You know, in other words, friends are close acquaintances, intimacy, that look out for each other, benevolence. They want to do good to each other, to put it in simple layman's terms. Friends that are close acquaintances who look out for each other. And good old dictionary.com, I love dictionary.com, it defines a friend this way, a person attached to another by feelings of affection or personal regard. That's not a bad definition of just a friend from a worldly standpoint. And I think most of us, wouldn't we call people that we have as our friends, they're people that have similar interests that we have. They're usually people that we, I would hope you'd spend time with your friends, don't you? people that we spend time with, and a friend somebody that you always think, that person will be there if I'm in trouble or in difficulty. Isn't that how most of us would define who we have as friends? And I don't know who wrote this, but I think it's true, <laughs> and a little humorous. And this person said, real friends are those who, when you've made a fool of yourself, don't feel you've done a permanent job. <laughs> that was pretty good, I thought. That wasn't Confucius, but uh, pretty close. All right. So today, what I want to do with what we're going to look at in this text, uh, we'll be looking at different places in 1 Samuel 18 through 20, is what is biblical friendship. So biblical friendship has many of the characteristics that you would think of with just worldly friendship, Christian or non-Christian, right? Things we've already talked about. So similar interest, affection, kindness. But I think Biblical friendship, it goes a little further than that, right? And we'll see that as we examine one of the most famous friendships of all, the friendship of Jonathan and David. And so what we have when we pick up here in 1 Samuel 18, beginning in verse 1, what's happened is in chapter 17, David has just defeated Goliath, and Jonathan has seen everything that took place, and he overhears the conversation that David has with his father Saul. And so that's where we pick up here in 18.1, and it says, And it came to pass, when he had made an end of speaking to Saul, that's David, had made an end of speaking to, unto Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. And it says, look what it says at the end there, Jonathan loved him as his own soul. But what was the cause of Jonathan's love for David? It says that they were knit or bound together. Like when you knit something, it is all tied in together, right? They're saying that's what had happened. Or to use an expression taken from Anne of Green Gables, those of you that have read the book or seen the movie, they were what? Kindred spirits, right? I don't think that's an alcohol term. If it is, forgive me, I'll repent next meeting. <laughs> but I think that's what it's saying. It's just someone that you just have a, this mutual bind or you're tied together. You know, you're just that close to friends, right? And Deuteronomy 13, 6 talks of that. It talks about that you have a friend which is as thine own soul. You just knit together as one. That's what a true friend was. And so what was it that knit the soul of David with the soul of Jonathan? And this is where the similar interests are sort of like what you have in the world, but different because they're godly interests. And so when we're talking about Christian friendship, it's because of Christian interests that you have. And so what was it that did the soul of David with the soul of Jonathan? When you read an account of Jonathan a few chapters back, you don't have to turn there, in 1 Samuel 14, 
You have the account of Jonathan and his armor bearer. They take on a whole garrison. It's like a scouting group of the Philistines in Michmash. And through that, you see that Jonathan had the same heart for the Lord that David did. So there's Saul and 600 of his men. They're sitting on a mountain, fearfully trying to decide how they're going to attack the Philistines because it says the only ones that had swords were Jonathan and Saul. Nobody else did. They'd have to get down to the Philistine to get their swords sharpened. They're scared to death up there. And it says Jonathan and his armor bearer, they snuck out, and they're heading to Michmash, where the Philistines are, where their army was stationed. And they come across the garrison, a little outpost of 20 Philistine soldiers. So they're outnumbered 20 to 2. Yeah, 20 to 2. But guess what? That didn't affect Jonathan's faith at all. Because here's what it says. Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, he says, come and let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. And it may be that the Lord will work for us. For there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or to save by few. Sounds like David, doesn't it? Calls them uncircumcised. And he says, my trust is not in me. It's not in our numbers. It never has been. It's in what? It's in the Lord. And he can save by a a bunch of us, or he can just save by a couple of us. And so it went on, if you read the account, Jonathan and his armor bearer, Jonathan starts slaying him, and the armor bearer's cleaning up house. It says they slaughtered all 20 of those men within a half acre of land, it says. And because of that, God worked through that, just like Jonathan said, hey, he can work through us by few or many, and he did work through it. Because here's what it goes on to say, 1 Samuel 14, 15, it says, then panic struck the whole army. All they did was defeat a garrison, but it set panic, it says, through the entire army of the Philistines. Panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and field and those in the outpost and raiding parties, and it says God shook the ground. Sounds like the book of Acts. Supernatural. <laughs> Jonathan wasn't shaking the ground, and it says at the end it was a panic sent by God. And so what happens? Saul's got his watchmen up on the mountains, and all of a sudden, they're like seeing the Philistines just slowly, it says, melting away. They're disappearing. Like, what is going on here? God's working a miracle. We're thinking we're going to get attacked. They're sitting there in fear. And because of Jonathan's faith, God worked through that. And this whole army that's ready to just wipe them out, it just says it's melting away. They're turning on each other, right? Now, the watchmen of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked and there was the multitude. Here's all these Philistines, it says, melting away. And they went here and they went there. They're no longer to be seen. Supernatural panic in the hearts of the Philistine army as they looked from the hills. Began to flee in droves, right? So look, look at the heart of Jonathan. Why are these two hearts knit together? He had a heart for the Lord, didn't he? Just like David, sold out for the glory of God believed that God would give him a victory over these uncircumcised Philistines. He wasn't worried about the odds. And neither was David, was he? Wasn't worried about it. His odds did not look good against Goliath. In the natural, they weren't good. Goliath would have chewed him up. And here's what's happening. Jonathan had that experience, right? David wasn't around then. But Jonathan sees what David did. What he did when he faced that Goliath. And Jonathan thinks, that's what I would have done. That's what I would have done. And he listens to what David says to his father Saul. He sees that David was humble, jealous for the glory of the Lord, and fearless in his faith. Same characteristics in both. And that's what formed that bond of friendship, isn't it? So just as a little aside here, you might be asking why Jonathan didn't go and fight Goliath. Saul wouldn't let him. Saul's trying to protect him. He wasn't going to let him go out there because when Jonathan went and did what he did at Michmash, it wasn't because Saul sent him to do that. It said he went without telling his dad because he knows his dad would have said, uh-uh, my friend, my son, you're going to inherit this throne. I'm not throwing you out there to the wolves. I'm keeping hold of you. You'll be the last to die if anyone does. I'm guarantee you right now, Jonathan was not afraid of Goliath. Guarantee it. And here's what we can get out of all that, just out of that first verse. And I think that we should pray that God would send Christians our way. People in this church should be here that have the same passion for God that you do. I really think that's important. You know, I, I define this. I remembered reading this years back. John G. Lake wrote this. 
If those of you who don't know, John G. Lake was a missionary to South Africa. Supernatural, got filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, he got filled with the Holy Spirit. And all kinds of supernatural signs and wonders, for real, followed his ministry. And here's what he said. He said, I met a young man on one occasion who seemed to me to be the most blessed man in some ways of all the men I had ever met. He says, I meet this young guy. This guy is blessed more than almost anyone else I had ever met. And he says, I observed that he was surrounded by a circle of friends of men or women, the deepest and truest it had ever been my privilege to know. He's like, this guy has got people around him. They are the deepest and truest friends I have ever seen. He said, one day I said to him, what is the secret of this circle of friends that you possess and the manner in which you seem to bind them to you? And he replied, Lake, my friendships are the result of the call of the soul. He says, my soul has called for truth and righteousness, for holiness, for grace, for strength, for soundness of mind, for the power of God. And that call has reached this one and this one and this one and brought them to me. And I think by that, he's just saying, he's proclaiming, he's living, he's letting people know this is how I am. And people like him were attracted to him and became his friends. Like attracted like. And that's what we have here with Jonathan and David. Isn't that? And so I think we need to be discerning about the friends that we have, don't we? I think we really do. But I think if you yourself are sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be able to tell other people that are the same way you are. Because there's a lot of people we all know, they talk religious talk all the time. And they may even say all the right things. But the more you're around them, the more you talk about them, you're just saying there's just something, it's not right here. And somebody, when you're sold out and you meet somebody that's sold out, you can just tell. And there's a certain attraction there. And hopefully, this church, I believe, is full of people that should be sold out to the Lord. Amen? Amen. All of us should say that's what it means to be a Christian, is to be sold out to the Lord. That's not the abnormal Christian. That's the Christian. You know, I met a a man, I've talked about him, his name was Will Brooks, and he was one of my seminary professors, and it's one of those kind of things. So I'm realizing this guy has really got a true heart for missions, no ulterior motives. He names his kid after Hudson Taylor. I'm saying he had a, a heart, and God had put it in his heart to minister to the Chinese people, married a Chinese woman. And I'm saying the more I talk to him, I had lunch with him, the more I'm around, I'm realizing this brother, he is a dear brother to me in that sense. Never looking for money. Get his newsletter every month. Never ask for money. He doesn't care about money. All he cares about is reaching the lost. That is his only goal. And I'm saying when you meet someone like that, there's a tie and a friendship that develops even though they're far away or you may not hardly ever talk to them. But he's a dear brother. You don't have to be close to somebody all the time. Do you to have somebody to be a friendship, somebody that you're close to? I don't think you do necessarily. So what I want to look at here through the example, I'm not looking at exhaustively everything the Bible has to say about friendship. We could have a series on this. Maybe we should. But today we're just going to look at three things that I see in the life of Jonathan and David. And in a lot of ways, we'll see it's contrasted. We have a contrast set here with the way that Saul treats David. He's not his friend. Not at all. So we look here where it says that David loved Jonathan as his own soul. It's immediately contrasted with Saul. So let's go back to 1 Samuel 18, and it says, And it came to pass when he, David, had made an end of speaking unto Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David, And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Verse 2, And Saul took him that day and would let him go no more to his father's house. And verse 3, Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him, it says it again, as his own soul. And look what happens in verse 4. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David and his garments, even to his sword and to his bow and to his girdle. So here's the thing we see about Jonathan. This is what a true friend is. His love was disinterested. In other words, he wasn't David's friend. He didn't love David because of something that he could get out of David. He's not being his friend so he can use him. Like, oh yeah, man, you're the guy that defeated Goliath. I hang around you, everybody's going to think something of me. No, that had nothing to do with it. It's totally disinterested, as we'll see here in a minute. But Saul, on the other hand, why did he bring David into his house? Was it a disinterest? He probably acted like, oh, oh, come on, brother, I'll see how God, I need you to come and stay with me. 
It wasn't that way. You know how one tent we have there in that verse? It says he would never let him go back to his father's house. Now, why do you take a young man away from his father and you never let him go back to visit? And isn't that what Samuel said? He goes, you want a king like all the other kings? But let me tell you how this king's going to be. He's not going to be a giver. He's going to be a taker. He's going to take your daughters and make them cooks. Take your sons, put them in the army. He's going to use you people. He's not a true friend, and that's the way he was with David. Only interested in using David for his own purposes. And so you can have friends like that. We've all had friends like that, right? They never give, always take. They have no real concern for your well-being. They know you got money and you can do things with you, so they like you. And that's the way it was for the prodigal son. Yeah, I mean, with his righteous living, he wasn't out there by himself having fun. I guarantee you that. I guarantee you he had a lot of money when he had all that inheritance and he's spending and taking up the beer tabs at the bars and everything else, right? But what happens when the money ran out? Ah, he's by himself. Nobody's helping him out. Where are his friends then? So we've all had friends like that. And that was Saul. And he becomes envious and jealous of David. Look down in verse 7. And when the women answered one another, after David has these great victories, and they said, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Oh, was Saul like, praise the Lord, David's doing better than me? Oh, look at verse 8. He was hot. And the saying displeased him, and he said, they have ascribed unto David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more but the kingdom? And so he's got an eye on him. Verse 9, he eyed David from that day forward. Man, he's like, uh-uh, he's jealous of him. You don't get jealous of your friends like that, because we'll see, Jonathan, who was a true friend, was just the opposite. And Saul's like, ah, oh, look at this guy. They're praising him now. What more is he going to get of mine, this guy that I just had my arm around that just saved me from Goliath and the whole nation of Israel? What's he going to have more but my kingdom? Well, look what we have here with Jonathan. Jonathan was willing that the glory and honor due him would go to one in more humble circumstances, right? And that's true friendship. It's selfless. It's not interested in what you can get out of me. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, says this, love envies not. And if you have a friend, you'll love them. And it goes on to say, love, you have a friend, it seeketh not her own. We don't see that with Saul. Saul is jealously trying to guard his own. But what do we have here? Look what we have in verse 4 with Jonathan. Where Saul's worried about giving the kingdom, look what Jonathan does in verse 4. It says, Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him, and he gave it to David and his garments, even to his sword and to his bow and to his girdle. He took off his princely robe, his garments, his girdle, his bow and sword, and gave them to David. He didn't have to do that. Do you know that? And do you know what all those articles represented? Those articles all represented Jonathan's right to the throne. Isn't he like John the Baptist? I must decrease, so he must increase. And that is true friendship. He's willing to give all of these things. He had the throne coming his way. All the perks that came with it. You imagine that? No president wants to ever give up their perks. They're not going to give it to some bum in the street. No way. But that's what he's doing to this shepherd boy. This little shepherd boy is giving it all. He's saying, he's my friend. My soul is knit to him. I love him. I want to see him honored. Cicero. Old Cicero said this. He says, a friend is a second self. And what he means by that is you're going to look out for your friend just like you would look out for yourself. And now we know that's what true love is. And so Jonathan, we're saying he had nothing to gain by supporting David and giving him all of his princely robe. Nothing to gain and everything to lose. Everything his father wanted him to have. And that is true friendship, is it not? That's the kind of friends we should tr strive to be. We're willing to give whatever we can to help our friends out. And that's what Jesus said, didn't he? John 15, 13, greater love has no man than this, than that a man lay down his life for who? Y'all know that verse, his friends. That's what you'll do. And so, you know, really, what is this all about? Is this all about morality and how we should be? No, this is really all pointing to who? Who does this point to? The Lord Jesus Christ. 
All the Old Testament was written to point to him. And didn't Jesus do what Jonathan did, but really even in a more amazing way? Because Jonathan saw something in David that drew that love and affection to him, didn't he? But you think about it. What did Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ, see in any of us that would cause him to want to be our friend and to want to tie himself to us? Nothing. 21 years of my life, you know, Jonathan saw that David had a heart for God and vice versa. I didn't have a heart for God for 21 years of my life. And Jesus made me his friend, so to speak. And you got to watch how you say all that because he's not your buddy at all. <laughs> when he's told the disciples that you're my friends, he also said you'll show that by your obedience. There's still that holy respect there for the Lord Jesus Christ. But me, now I sinned against him a thousand times. I knew he'd died on the cross, that if I would just turn and repent, he would accept me. And I didn't want to do any of that. Yet, he's still, this is the kind of friend he's been, not only for me, but for all of you. He still pursued us, didn't he? Pursued us in love. And for me, he sent preachers my way, other Christians. I had a sister that he put it on her heart to fast for me, along with another sister that didn't even hardly know me that well. And that's what God does for us, right? Thousands of other ways God pursued us that we're not even aware of. Preserved our lives until we got saved. But most of all, Jonathan cast off his robes. What did the Lord Jesus Christ do? It's a type of him, didn't he? Didn't he have to cast off his robes? I'm sure we're going to hear more about that Wednesday night. But he had to cast off his robes and take on my sin and your sin and suffer for us to be friends. Now that's amazing. It really is. Great humiliation, if you think about that. Nothing that we'll ever understand. The shame, the crown of thorns, the spitting, the beating in the face, the excruciating pain on the cross, hanging there naked and jeered, all so that we could be brought back into a friendly relationship, reconciled, friends again with God. We'd lost all of that. So we could walk with Him again as Adam did in the garden and have fellowship, and have God Almighty speak to us. We didn't have that before. He didn't speak to us as sinners. We couldn't go and know that God was speaking to us and comforting us by His Holy Spirit. He doesn't do that for sinners, but He did that for us. Also, He took off His robes and came down here and went through all of that just so we could be clothed with robes of righteousness that He's given us. And that's what I see here in 1 Samuel 18. We could admire Jonathan, can't we, for that friendship he had with David, but how much more should we admire our Lord Jesus Christ for what he did? And listen, that love that he showed there, that self-sacrificing love, where else do we see that? That's the love that God ordained in the garden that a man and a woman should have for each other. Because Adam and Eve in the garden, they were perfectly happy, and they were perfectly happy to bless each other in an unselfish way. Because when sin wasn't in the world, you know what sin is in its essence? It's selfishness. It is. And so there was no selfishness in the garden until sin entered in. There was perfect harmony between Adam and Eve. So if you would, put something there and turn to Ephesians 5. And let's look what it says there. Verses 25 to 32. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 25, Paul writes, Husbands... Love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. And he says, so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. Isn't that what we're talking about here with Jonathan and David in true friendship? For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. And this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. So marriage, I believe, should be the ultimate 
friendship because it was God's answer. We know this. Wasn't it? it was God's answer to loneliness? Because what did he say? It's not good that man should be alone. I will make and help me for him. And as we've heard so many times, not a doormat, not a slave. But when he says help me, he means somebody that compliments him. Somebody that meets his needs, his needs for fellowship. Growing up in my family, I knew my mom and dad, they were friends. I mean, they just shared everything. And, but I never knew when you talk about complimenting, and that's what a friend will do a lot of times. I never realized how much my mom complimented my dad and met his needs until she passed away. And I'll tell you how that happened, because they didn't share with us how they made decisions and all that. They just looked at it like it was none of our business, and it wasn't. But I get a behind-the-scenes picture of it. I wouldn't try to be funny, but okay. So I always thought my dad, he's a businessman and all that, taught me how to balance the books and do all those kinds of things. But I thought he was conservative in his thinking and spending. I thought that's where that came from. I find out it was my mom. Because once my mom passed away, dad, forgive me if you're watching, my dad started going out and buying and spending left and right big ticket items and not even thinking about what he's doing to where my older brother said, dad, I'm just telling you right now, you wanna spend anything over $200, you call me up first. <laughs> and I find out it was my mom. I never heard her do it in front of me and my dad. She was the one putting the brakes on my dad in a nice way. She complimented him. And that's what a friend will do. I realized my mom was a true friend to my dad. It, it worked both ways. My dad watched out for my mom for years in a nursing home, sacrificed in that way. And that's what I see here. A true friend is disinterested. That's what we should see here. And that's the way we should be towards each other, shouldn't we? We don't help people out because we can get something out of it or just because we like them. We help them out because they're a brother or sister in the Lord and they have a need. Amen? That's what we should do. And the second thing here I want us to see, if we go back to 1 Samuel 18, please, is that Jonathan was a loyal friend. Jonathan and David, they made a covenant. And we see that there in 1 Samuel 18, 3. It says, and then Jonathan and David, the two of them, they made a covenant. Why? Because he loved him as his own soul. They made a pledge to each other, a pledge of loyalty. And what was the covenant they made? Turn over a couple chapters over to chapter 20, please. And look in verse 8. And there it is. It says, Therefore thou shalt deal kindly with thy servant, for thou hast brought thy servant into a covenant of the Lord with thee. Notwithstanding, if there be in me iniquity, slay me thyself, for why shouldest thou bring me to thy father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from me, for if I knew certainly that evil were determined by my father to come upon thee, then would not I tell thee? And then said David to Jonathan, Who shall tell me? Or what if thy father answered thee roughly? And Jonathan said unto David, Come, and let us go out into the field. And they went out, both of them, into the field. And Jonathan said unto David, O Lord God of Israel, when I have sounded my father about tomorrow, any time, or the third day, behold, if there be good toward David, and I then send thought unto thee, and show it to thee, the Lord do so, and much more to Jonathan. But if it please my father to do the evil, then I will show it thee, and send thee away, that thou mayest go in peace. And the Lord be with thee, as he has been with my father. And thou shalt not only while yet I live show me the kindness of the Lord, that I die not. But also thou shalt not cut off thy kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off the enemies of David, every one from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord even require it at the hand of David's enemies. And Jonathan calls David to swear again, because he loved him. For he loved him, it says again, as he loved his own soul. And so what was the covenant? This is the covenant of two friends. Jonathan said, I will watch out for you. If trouble's coming your way from my father, I will warn you. That was his side. He said, but David, when you come into the king, because he knew what was going to happen, he said, don't cut off my house. And they made that pledge to each other, a solemn vow and pledge. Both men kept their pledges, didn't they? You go on and finish out and read the account, that's what happened. And they made their covenant before whom? Who did they bring in on that covenant? The Lord. They made that covenant before the Lord and with each other. So how do you think this question that what we have here in America, supposedly a nation full of Christians, that God looks on couples that make a covenant with each other, 
they pledge their honor, they pledge their love and faithfulness to the other, each other, and at the first sign of trouble, they split. How do you think God looks on that? And so just because our nation and our society allow things like that to happen legally doesn't mean God doesn't care because I think he cares a lot. And so what we need to see there, friendship involves loyalty. That's the principle we're getting out of that, whether it's in a marriage, family, children, or in a church. We have to have that. And when I've read history, I like to read history. I wish I had time to read more history. One of the things I love to read about is loyalty, especially in the face of adversity. And that's what we have going on. Someone wrote this, a true friend is someone who is there for you when he'd rather be anywhere else. Think about that. That's a true friend. He's there for you. Whatever situation you're in, he'd rather be 100 miles away doing something else. But a friend will be there to help you through it, won't he? So there was a time I was reading a lot about the Civil War. (laughs) And I'm telling you, the Civil War has shaped our modern culture more than any of us are aware of. But at the end of the war, when Lee, General Lee from the South, you know the South lost the war. (laughs) I sometimes wonder if they really believe it, though. But when Lee's troops surrendered, this is what they found. The Union soldiers, they come upon the Confederate troops, what was left of them anyways. And here's what they found. They had no shoes, many of them, had not eaten a good meal in months. They're eating half rations. They had filthy, ragged uniforms. And they said, I would read accounts, they said they stunk so bad you could smell them miles away. Filthy. But here's the thing. They remained loyal to General Lee until the end. They didn't desert, even though there were terrible conditions. It said, we're just waiting for our next orders to fight. He had to tell them, hey, boys, it's all over. You just need to go home. Order them to go home, because they were waiting, despite how they were living. Now, that is loyalty. Adverse conditions. I'll say it again. A true friend is someone who is there for you when he'd rather be anywhere else. There is no way those guys, General Lee was their friend, in their general. They'd have rather been anywhere else than that, back to their family, back to their farm, but they committed themselves in loyalty to him as their friend. And we should be, like I said, we should be that loyal to our wives, our children, and our Christian brothers and sisters. But this Christian brother, I won't give you his name, you wouldn't know who he was, but many years ago he wrote this, Friendship of itself is a holy tie, and it is made more sacred by adversity. Christian friendship, it's a holy tie, a holy bond, and it's made more so that way by adversity. So what he's saying is nothing brings out the God-like qualities of a true Christian friendship than what's displayed when things get tough. Amen? Amen? That's how you can really tell who your friends are. And all of that, though, with loyalty, does that mean that we don't speak the truth to correct people at times? We will have to, right? Because that is part of being a faithful, loyal friend. Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. So, you know, a true friend is going to tell you things that you don't want to hear, but you need to, right? Right. Like, your hair looks terrible, and you didn't realize it, right? A true friend will tell you that. Amen. You know, all the little embarrassing things. I don't want to get gross that, you know, people look at you, and they're talking to you. I'm like, man, I've talked to four people, and I've had this situation on my face. And you're the first one to tell me, thank you, right? Because I know you're a friend. You'll be honest with you, and, you know, you're not worried about offending me. We all know what I'm talking about, right? Well, listen, how should that be done, though, right? Harshly? (laughs) Oh, I'm saying a friend, and all of us can learn here. I'm preaching to myself all day today, okay? A friend is not going to talk to someone else that's their friend harshly, will you? No, you'll use tact. So listen, at the beginning of Job's trial, he's in the beginning of that trial. It says this. Now, when Job's three friends, they're supposed to be his friends. They heard of all this evil that had come upon him. They made an appointment together to come to mourn with him. And they're coming. We're going to mourn with Job. All of this has happened to him. He's our friend. We're going to mourn with him, and we're going to comfort him. That's what it said they were going to do. But did they? (laughs) So you don't have to go too far in that book. 
all for it's 42 chapters you get up to chapter 16 you know it goes in rounds one the second one the third one and then it goes back again the first one the second one and the third one and they just keep getting harder on him and harder on him right so they go through the rounds and then finally and after they've all had their turn speaking their piece job says this in job 16 he says listen to everything you're telling me i've heard things like this before but he says, miserable comforters are you all. <laughs> That's what he told him. His friends. He's a southern boy. Old Job was. Miserable comforters are y'all. Right? <laughs> he says, I thought you guys were coming here as my friends and you're going to help me through this crisis. Because that's what he needed was some real comfort. Some southern comfort, right? Not the real thing, but southern comfort. Like <laughs> the way southerners are, they're very comforting. Right? <laughs> But he's telling them in his own southern Job way, but y'all are not giving me any comfort. You're making me more miserable, right? And so your miserable friends bringing miserable comfort. <laughs> That's basically what he's saying. So no, friends aren't going to do that, are they? <laughs> they're not going to heap on when you're in a trial. They're not going to make your trial worse. Or if you've sinned and you've messed up. Galatians 6, one's brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of what? Gentleness, meekness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. And I'm saying all of us, and I'm saying me especially, I could use a lot of work there. You know, I'll move down here and I mean up north you just kind of, you get down to business. Tax not always, you know, it's just like you kind of say what you need to say, but in the south you get around to it eventually. <laughs> right? That's the way it is. I praise the Lord. So when David needed comfort the most, here's what we see with Jonathan, though. In the midst of his great adversity, Saul's chasing him. He's in the mountains. He's got to be beside himself. Guess what? We're saying a friend will come when he'd rather be anywhere else, but he'll come and give you comfort and help. And that's what Jonathan did. Look in 1 Samuel 23. He's in Ziph, the wilderness of Ziph. Saul, it says, look in verse 14. It says, Saul sought him every day. David abode in the wilderness and strongholds and remained in the mountains in the wilderness of Ziph. And it says Saul was after him like a hound dog. Didn't give up. And it's wearing on David. But God was with him. God delivered him not into his hand. In verse 15, and David saw that Saul was come out to seek his life. And David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a wood. He's got to be upset. And look what happens. Here comes his buddy, Jonathan. Verse 16, and Jonathan, Saul's son, he arose and went to David into the wood. And what did he do? Here's what his friend did. Strengthened his hand in God. And that's what we should be seeking to do with each other. Strengthen each other in the Lord. Encourage each other in the Lord. It's nothing wrong with talking about sports, the weather, hiking, boats, whatever. But we need to strengthen each other in the Lord. Edifying words. Amen? And that's what he did. He strengthened David in the Lord. Verse 17, and said unto him, O fear not, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find thee, and thou shalt be king over Israel, and I shall be next unto thee. What humility there. Looking out for his friend. And that also Saul my father, Saul my dad, he knows it. And they too made a covenant before the Lord, another covenant. And David abode in the wood, and Jonathan went back to his house. But he went out of his way. That was not an easy thing for him to do. It wasn't a convenient thing for him to do. But he saw his friend needed encouragement, and he came and gave it to him. And that's what friends will do. Amen? That's what friends will do. You know what else is also amazing about Jonathan? And this is something all of us can learn, and especially young people in this church, that he kept his pledge to David. But you know what he also did? He remained true and loyal to his father, Saul. He never left his side. And let me ask you, the way Saul acted, and David was the same way. He was never disloyal to Saul, was he? He wasn't. And the way Saul acted, did he deserve any of that? Because sometimes people say, oh, the way my parents are, they, don't, no, you, they always deserve your loyalty and friendship even, right? Because Jonathan was a true friend to his father. So that's the commandment, honor thy father and mother, whether they deserve it or not. And Jonathan was respectful unto his father and a friend of his up to his death. And so 
Look in 2 Samuel, if you would, chapter 1. 2 Samuel 1. I mean, this is where it speaks of the death, and David laments the death of Jonathan and Saul. So 2 Samuel 1, the first four verses there, and it says, And it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had abode two days in Ziglag, it came even to pass on the third day that, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes rent and earth upon his head. And so it was when he came to David that he fell to the earth and did obeisance. And David said unto him, From whence comest thou? And he said unto him, Out of the camp of Israel am I escaped. And David said unto him, How went the matter? I pray thee, tell me. And he answered that the people are fled from the battle, and many of the people also are fallen and dead. And here they are. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. And then look down in verses 11 and 12. It says, And then David took hold on his clothes and rent them, and likewise all the men that were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they were fallen by the sword. And look at verse 17. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan his son. And also he bade them teach the children of Judah the use of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. The beauty of Israel is slain upon thy high places. How are the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ascalon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. Ye mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew, neither let there be rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty is violently cast away, the shield of Saul, as though he had not been anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. And look in verse 23. Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. Ye daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with other delights, who put on ornaments of gold upon your apparel. How are the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle? O oh, Jonathan, thou wast slain in thine high places. I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant hast thou been unto me. Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. How are the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished? And so they were never divided in death. That was like David having his own heart ripped out. Having Jonathan slain. Lost his best friend right there. And so if you'll turn back to 1 Samuel 18, here's another thing out of that loyalty that comes, that as a loyal friend, Jonathan defended David. That's what a friend will do. He never did harm him. And so, as I said, there's a lot of ways that Jonathan is contrasted with Saul because Saul tried to harm David many times and in many ways. So you can read all this. It's in 1 Samuel chapters 18 and 19, but twice Saul tried to get David to pierce him with a javelin, threw a javelin at him twice. And by the hand of the Philistines, he sends him to war, hoping that the Philistines will kill him. These are all the ways that Saul tried to kill David. He tells Jonathan and his servants, I want you all to take a sword and kill him. Ordered them to do it, which they didn't do. 19, he uses the javelin again, 1 Samuel 19:10. In 1 Samuel 19, 11, he sends messengers to the home of David to kill him there. Michael manages to keep that from happening. And then in 1920, he sends messengers when he hears that David and Samuel are together in Ramah. And Jonathan, in contrast, at the risk of his own life. So here, in contrast to Saul, who does everything he can to have David eliminated, even though I'm sure it, he's acting friendly to him up to this point, up to chapter 19. But in contrast to that, you have Jonathan who does what he can to defend David at the risk of his own life. And so look in chapter 19, verse 1, it says, And Saul spake to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But, verse 2, Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, seeks to kill thee. Now, therefore, I pray thee, take heed to thyself until the morning. 
and abide in a secret place and hide thyself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will commune with my father of thee. And what I see, that I'll tell you. And Jonathan spake good of David unto Saul, his friend. He's defending him. Spoke good of David unto Saul, his father, and said unto him, Well, let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his works have been to thee were very good. For did he not put his life in his hand and slew the Philistine? And the Lord wrought a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it, Dad, and you rejoiced. Wherefore then will you sin against innocent blood to slay David without a cause? And at this point, verse 6, it says, And Saul hearkened unto the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, As the Lord liveth, he shall not be slain. <sighs> but that doesn't last long, because you go the next chapter over into chapter 20, and Saul has the new moon festival. And guess who isn't there? David is not there. When he doesn't show up, He'd sworn that he wouldn't kill him. And look what happens. Look in verse 27. And it came to pass on the morrow, which was the second day of the month, that David's place was empty. And Saul said unto Jonathan his son, Wherefore cometh not the son of Jesse to food or to meat, neither yesterday nor today? And Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. And he said, Let me go, I pray thee, for our family has a sacrifice in the city. And my brother, he has commanded me to be there. Now, if I have found favor in thy eyes, let me get away, I pray thee, and see my brethren. Therefore, he comes not unto the king's table. And look what happens. Verse 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said unto him, Thou son of a perverse, rebellious woman. <laughs> Loving words from a father. He says, Do not I know that thou hast chosen the son of Jesse to thine own confusion and under the confusion of thy mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives upon the ground, thou shalt not be established, nor thy kingdom. Wherefore now send and fetch him unto me, for he shall surely die. And look here again, Jonathan defends David. And Jonathan sent him to Saul his father and said, Why should he be slain? What has he done? And look what happens in verse 33. And Saul cast a javelin at him him, his own son, to smite him, whereby Jonathan knew that it was determined of his father to slay David. Threw it at his own son. So let me ask you a question. We're saying there he's willing, Jonathan knew what was happening. He's willing to risk his own life for his friend, to defend his friend. And let me ask you, are you willing to lay your life down for those that you call your friend? Or we have to ask ourselves, are we a Judas? A Judas. Because when Judas led the crowd to Jesus, listen to what Jesus said unto him. Friend, he already knew he was going to betray him. He already knew what his end was, and yet Jesus called him friend. Because Jesus always was a friend to Judas. He's not the one that betrayed their friendship. But he said, friend, wherefore art thou come? Why are you coming here, friend? Are you coming here to be my friend? Is that what you're doing here, Judas? Friend? You're coming here to be my friend? What did I do to you? That's what Jonathan said to, to Saul. What did David ever do to you? He was a loyal friend, and you're doing this to him? And Jesus said that to Judas. He'd been a friend of Judas, and that's, it. that's how he was betrayed, by being betrayed. Psalm 41.9 says, Yea, my own familiar friend. That's a prophecy of the relationship of Jesus and Judas. Jesus didn't hold back his friendship from Judas. My own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread. Jesus trusted in him. He, they had meals together. Jesus was the one that provided Judas' food. And yet it says, he has lifted up his heel against me. We don't want to be friends like that. Because Proverbs 17, 17 says that a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. And so let me ask you, do we stick up for the honor of our friends, our brothers and sisters in the midst of the enemies, even if it means we're going to somehow receive harm from that? So what if you're with a group, and they start putting down somebody that's a Christian friend of yours, whoever it is? Do you stick up for them then? They're saying things that you know are twisted and distorted and they've never done you harm. Do you allow that to go on? 
without sticking up for your friend? Agree with them? Or worse, do you even add to what they're saying just because you're outnumbered? have to ask yourself, because all of us are guilty at this at times. Sometimes all of us has backstabbed somebody, like what Saul did. If David hadn't done Saul any wrong, he'd been a loyal, faithful servant. And that's the thing. This is one pet peeve of mine. And that is, you tell somebody something in confidence, and they take that, and they go and tell the other person, knowing they're going to stir up trouble. That is a problem. And then it ends up causing trouble between the two of you that should have never been there person knowingly does that. And then does the Bible talk about that at all? It does. Proverbs 16, 28 says, a perverse man stirs up dissension and gossip separates close friends. Gossip separates close friends. Proverbs 79, he who conceals a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. Now, all of us have been guilty of this, right? He who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. I'm convicted about that. I mean, there's times I say things, I don't need to say that. It didn't change the situation that I was talking about. All it is is just me venting, me thinking out loud. I just need to learn to button my lip about times. But that's what happens, right? And it's talking about friendships there. Gossip separates close friends. He who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. But that's not the way the Lord is with us. He wasn't that way with Judas. He's not that way with any of us in here. He isn't. Proverbs 18, 24 says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but... So you can have a lot of friends and still end up destitute, but he says, But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So we've got a friend that will never stab us in the back. He sticks to us, just like Jonathan and David. And who is this friend that sticks closer than the brother? We all know who it is. I could go one, two, three, and you'd all get it right. Open book test. You wouldn't even have to look at uh, what page is that on. You know, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? God. Jesus does talk behind our back constantly. He is constantly talking upon, behind our back. Did you know that? He is. That's what Hebrews 7.25 says. He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's always talking behind our back, and I'm glad he is. <laughs> That's the only way we're going to make it. Because the Lord Jesus Christ, he never gets tired, he never gets weary. He is always praying for us because your friends, your family, you're in a trial. They can all fall asleep and forget, maybe aren't that concerned. But Jesus, no, no, he knows what's going on. He's always a friend that's interceding on our behalf. A friend that sticks closer than a brother. Now that is close if you have a good brother. You may have a bad brother, but if you've got a good brother, they'll watch out for you. They'll be there to help you. And he says he sticks closer than that. That's something else. Let me just say this in closing here. If we go back all the ways that Saul tried to kill David, eight different ways, David wasn't just lucky. It wasn't like he just won the lottery and Saul wasn't able to get him. That's not what happened. But I want to consider the very last one I told you all about because God literally intervened directly by his Holy Spirit. David is meeting with Samuel and Rabbah, and Saul sends a group of messengers there. You go get him and kill him. That's what I want you to do. And it says as those messengers got close to that city, God himself directly intervened. It says the Spirit of God came on them, and what did they do? Prophesied. And so that didn't work. They're all there just standing there prophesying. Saul's like, what is going on? And he sends another group, same things happens, sends another group, three groups of messengers, every one of them, God supernaturally empowers them by his Holy Spirit. Their intention is to kill David. And instead of doing that, they're prophesying. And so Saul is like, this is crazy. You guys are weak. I'm going myself. And that's what it says. Saul goes himself goes to Rabbah. And as he gets there, what happens? The same thing happened. Old wicked King Saul, God's spirit comes on him. And it says Saul took off all his clothes and stood there and prophesied. God supernaturally intervened on his behalf. And we're saying, hey, there is a friend we have. God Almighty is our friend. Closer than a brother, because a brother has limitations, doesn't he? With the best of intentions. But God being our friend, he will defend us like no one else can. 
and he will. And so if we can just turn to Psalm 91, it shows how God defends us like a brother. And we're going to read the entire psalm. Psalm 91, he that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge, my fortress, my God, we could say my friend. In him will I trust. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flies by day, nor for the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor for the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side, and ten thousand by thy right hand. But your friend will never leave you, because it says it shall not come nigh thee. Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High thy habitation, there shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, unless thou dash thy foot against a stone. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder. The young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under feet. Because, God says, you have set your love upon me. Therefore, he says, will I deliver you. I will set you on high because you have known my name. And he shall call upon me, and I will what? Answer him. And I will be with him. A friend that sticks closer than a brother. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. And with long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. And all the believers said, Amen. Now that's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He will be there to defend you, to protect you, to give you everything you need. Everything you need. God Almighty. Unlimited spirit. That's what he can do. A father that loves us. Loves us as our friends. So what are the characteristics of a godly friend? One we looked at was unselfish love. You're going to seek the good of the other as if it was your own. That's the first thing we saw. And the other is you will have unwavering loyalty. That's what a true friend is. Someone with unwavering loyalty. And the last thing we looked at, it's someone that will come to your defense. And no one does any of those three things more than our Lord Jesus Christ, God Almighty, right? But that, on a personal level, should still be the way we deal with our friends. Our friends here. Our friends anywhere, for that matter. And so are you and I that kind of friend? And like they say, I don't only want to be that kind of friend. For me, working on this and thinking through this, very convicting message. I not only want to be that kind of friend, I want God to put those kind of friends in my life. Because we can't all be friends on the same level with each other, can we? No. Jesus wasn't on the same level with all 12 of his apostles. He had three that were his intimate friends. And I can't tell you how many times that I've read biographies of godly men down through the ages. And they'll say, if you can just have one or two friends like Jonathan, a friend like that, you've done well. And I think that's true. One or two, many of them will say. So we can have many acquaintances, people that we do anything for, people in this church, but you're not going to have that many intimate friends, people that show all those characteristics that we talked about today. But the Bible says that we can always have that kind of friend with whom? The Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can have those friendships here, I'm not saying that. But let me just close with Psalm 2710 says this. This is the way the Lord is. David wrote that when my father and my mother forsake me, what does he say will happen? Then the Lord will take me up. He will be there, a constant friend. Never will fail us. Amen? Well, that's comforting. I think it is. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for these stories, true stories that we have in the Old Testament examples that we can learn from, that we can see how your grace works in friendships, how true friendship works, Father. 
And we thank you for that, Lord. And I ask that you'll put it in all of our hearts that we are true friends to people in our church, our brothers and sisters, willing to sacrifice, willing to help, willing to come when trouble is there, even when it's inconvenient. And I ask, Lord, also that you'll help us to remember what a friend you have been to us. You've gone out of your way to help us when we didn't deserve it, when there was nothing in us to deserve your friendship. And yet you've drawn us to you. You've cleansed us. You've put your robes on us and watched out for us and done everything that a loyal friend could do. And I just ask, Father, you'll never allow any of us to betray you and to turn on you. And yet you still will remain faithful. And we thank you that we can know that you are a faithful God that can be trusted as a friend. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.